Hear the word of the Lord from 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. God, we give you thanks for your word. Your word, which you tell us, is a lamp to our feet, guiding our paths, guiding our steps, showing us where to go. I pray that you would guide us, that you would guide our steps this morning in this meditation on this great chapter of love in 1 John. Mend our hearts. Encourage us, strengthen us, bind us together in your love. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. You know, there's a, there's a sign that I, I see sometimes, sometimes it's in yards, I actually saw it this morning um, uh, on the interwebs, and it's a sign that always makes me chuckle a little bit just because it doesn't really make sense, but it says, uh, love is love. Or this morning I saw the sign, it says, love is love is love. And uh, obviously it's, it's a sign that's, promoting a, a sexual freedom with no boundaries. Um, but maybe more than that, this statement, I think is almost a statement of our, of our time that says, I'm independent. It's a statement that says, listen, no one can tell me what to do, what to love, but me. And it's a statement of defiance that says, listen, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, and not you or anyone else can tell me otherwise. And, uh, and my question for you is, how has this idea gone and for our society? Has this, has this idea actually brought about peace? Has it brought about happiness? Has, has it brought about contentment? Well, no. I mean, you look at the stats and it's staggering that the, the amount of anxiety and, the, and depression drugs that get prescribed every year are more and more and more. Suicide rates, rates are up. Drug addictions and deaths due to drug addictions are, are up. Divorce rates are, are through the roof. And the only reason that some of these rates have dropped off when it comes to divorce is because people just aren't getting married anymore. And so they can follow the, the call of love more easily when it bids them to chase a different lover. And so this, this love is love mantra that was meant to bring about peace, meant to bring about prosperity, meant to, to bring about um, uh, goodness, instead has, has brought about anxious, 
hearts in poverty. Which shouldn't surprise us because this love is love idea is not new. Uh, It's happened before. You know, when we declared ourselves as ultimate authorities in our life, chasing our heart's desires, we are really just reenacting the great fall that happened in Genesis 3. Bearing the same fruit that Adam and Eve did from, from the land of peace and prosperity and the presence of God to a place of discord, to wilderness, where brother, where the first story out of the garden is like a brother murdering brother out of envy. This is the world we still live in. Whenever we chase our heart's desires with no regard for anyone but ourselves, we reenact this Genesis 3 moment. And there's this truth in us that we all have this desire, this longing for love. There's this echo of, of Eden that's in our hearts and minds, but on our own, we cannot actually answer that call of love. You know, the all you gotta do is love mantra of the, of the 60s and 70s can't fix anything, not on its own. And in the passage before us in John, uh, John wants us to teach us about love. Right? He wants to teach us about the beauty and the power of love, that it actually can change the world. Um, but the power of it to change the world doesn't rely on the strength of our love, but in the strength of God's love. Right? Our, our love on its own, independent, actually brings about destruction as we're tempted to, to pursue every desire that pops into our minds. But it's actually the strength and the power of, of God's love that changes the world. And as his love grips and transforms the hearts and minds of his people, it it creates a new people that are sent out into the world to be his representatives. And he sends us out into the world to be witnesses of that love that the whole world could be filled with that glory. And so this morning, if, if love is a confusing thing for you, if you've grown weary, if you've grown in despair about the power of love, this passage is for you. Because this is, I think, the greatest chapter in all of scripture uh, about love. And there's three aspects of, of God's love that are going to be on display for us that will teach us both the, about the nature and the strength of his love. And they're these. It's, we're going to first see that the incarnation of God's love. Second, we're going to see that the rebirth in God's love. And, and last, we're going to see the fruit of God's love. So first, the, the incarnation of God's love. And you know that the first thing you notice about God's love, which comes into the world, is what he says here in verse 8. And just one quick note. First John, you know, he's a different kind of writer than other people that we've, we've gone through. And so he's less linear thinking. And so we're not going to go straight through verse by verse like we normally do. We're going to kind of ebb and flow throughout this passage. And hopefully it'll make sense. If not, you can write me an email complaining later. Um, but let's look at verse 8. He says this. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. God is, the first thing he really teaches us about God and his love is that he actually is love. Well, what, is, what does it mean? Well, at the very least, I think the fact that God is love means that he is a triune God. All right, to say God is love assumes he is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, as St. Augustine and, and many others throughout church history have said, for love to be genuine, for love to be love, it requires an object. It requires an other, a, a beloved to love. And we know that God is eternal. He's forever, which means he had to have an other to love for all time, even before he created us. For him to be love, he, he, he has to always be love. And so the, the true God, the living God, is love, and he lives in eternal communion of perfect love and joy and peace with, with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? The Father eternally loving the Son through the Spirit, the Son returning love to the Father in the same Spirit. And because he is eternally and essentially love, he can love us with an eternal love. And so his, his love for us is an expression of the deepest parts of his character. And his love manifests in the world in every action that he takes. You know, when God created the world and loved his creation, this was not a new experience for him. It was an extension of the love that the Father, Son, and Spirit have always had for each other. And he invites us into that. So to say God is love is to say that God has always and eternally been love, which means he's triune. And so now every act of God towards his creation is a manifestation of this triune love. And we see this most clearly in the incarnation of Jesus. Verse nine says this, he says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love. 
Love carries action. God is love, and as God of, the God of love was born into this world, right, love incarnate, love taking on flesh, right? The God who is love taking on flesh, he, he comes to love his world. Why did he come? He says here that he, he came into the world incarnate that we might have life in him, which assumes that apart from, from Jesus coming into this world, we have no life. Apart from him, we are united to the old Adam, dead in our sin, dead in our trespasses. So what has this great act of Jesus coming in the flesh done to bring new life? We see this here in, in verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He says this is love. Not our love for each other or our love for God that defines love, but it's actually his love for us that defines it. And love is defined and seen most clearly in the acts of Jesus. Right, love incarnate, love manifested among us. And in Jesus, right, love took on flesh to serve his people and die for them. To be the propitiation for their sins. And this propitiation is this word that's used throughout the New Testament. John has used it before. And it's a word that, that is speaking of the, the wrath of God towards sin. And for, for Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins means that Jesus took the wrath of God towards sin on himself. He took, he took God, the wrath that God has towards sin on Jesus. Instead of being placed on us, it's placed on him. This is love. That self-sacrificial love that says, I will die so that you can live. This is love. It's not our capacity to love. Because on our own, we're, we're dead in our sin. And even when we try to love, our loves ebb and flow. Our <laughs> desires change day and night. And, and sometimes, even in, in the night, our, our, our desires ebb and flow. But not God's. Because we are on our own dead in our sin, love is, is not love, which would mean that every desire we have is even distorted desires would be legitimate, but God is love. And this is seen most clearly in the incarnation and in God's nature to love his children, even if it means death for himself. God's love incarnate in action, because love always begs for action. This is love. Which means that for us to love the way that God defined love means that our love will look like his, self-giving, sacrificial, not seeking its own gain, but the gain of others, which is actually the opposite of the message of our world today, right? The world today is, is all about self-love, right? The foundation of love is actually the love I have for myself. You know, I was listening to a, a Selena Gomez song, and you can make fun of me for this later. It's a great song. Most of you probably don't even know who Selena Gomez is, but in, in 2021, she released this uh, single, and it's, this, it's, a, it's a breakup song, so it's a little over the top because, you know, breakup songs. But uh, I think there's this reoccurring line in it that really, I think, sums up our culture's definition of love. Here's, here's the lyric. Uh, it says, I needed to lose you to find me. I needed to hate you to love me. And there's some like, yes, yes, you know, because it's a pop song. And then there's this reoccurring phrase that says this, I needed to lose you to love me. I needed to lose you to love me. I think it's a statement that really defines the way our world thinks of love. Right? For the world, love begins and ends with ourselves. But according to scripture, according to John, this is not love. Love is selfless. Love looks for the interests of others. Love says, let me die so that you can live. That's love. And even when scripture does talk about loving ourselves, it's not always bad, like self-esteem stuff is not always bad, right? But it, it, when scripture talks about loving ourselves, it's used as an example for how we're actually supposed to love others. It's still others motivated. And that's the definition of love. It's always pushing us out to love the other. Love is, and we can see this love most clearly in Christ who gave himself that we can have life. Not because of anything we did on our own. While we were still his enemies, he did this. This is love. Right? To know God is to be transformed by that love. That your love would begin to mimic his that would look like him. So, so the question is, if our love by nature is a little bit weak, if we're, if we're frail in our love, if we're prone to wander in our love, how do we actually learn to do this? To put into practice what he's talking about. How do we learn to actually love like Jesus loved? Well, to use John's reoccurring language here, to, to know God and to learn to love as, as he loves, says you have to be born of him. This is a reoccurring theme in all of John's writings, this idea of being born again, born in love, born out of love. This is the second thing we see about God's love here is, is the rebirth in God's love. 
rebirth in God's love. Let's look with, back at verse seven. He says this, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Right? To love, to, to know God is to be born of him. To be made a, a new creation, born of this second Adam, right, Jesus. And as we're born in him, we're made like him. A birth in and by his great love for us, born into his family, right? God sent his only son into the world that he might gain more sons and daughters in you and I, right? Because God is love, to be born of him means that we will have the DNA of love in us. Because you can't be born of him and not have the mark of love on your life. So how does this rebirth happen? Well, he tells us here, it's through the power of the spirit that this happens. Look in verse 13, he says this, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Right? The, the Holy Spirit is the, is the agent that kind of burrs us again, grafting us into Christ, our older brother. To, to abide in him is to be united to him. Right? The love that's being spoken of isn't this a kind act between two people who don't know God, but this is the kind of love that is only capable of those who have been born of the Spirit. Right? The same Spirit that enables the triune God to, to be love brings us into that triune communication, the triune dance of love. Well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, it means that your nature has changed. This, there's a new DNA that you have. The language that Peter uses is the term ethnic group. You've become a new ethnic group, a new person. You have new blood in you. You're now marked by this. You are now marked by love. You have been born again. You are now called beloved, which is to be loved by God. You who were once enemies are now children of God. You have been changed, and God's love is doing this, and his love is perfecting you. And as you are reborn in love, made his children, it means that you no longer need to fear. It's kind of an interesting turn that he takes here with the fear stuff. Look with me back here at verse 17. It says, by this, by, by this is love perfected with us, so we might have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, also, because as he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with the punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. It's kind of an interesting shift here in the language. He's saying because all this is true, because you are this new creation, this, this new being born in love, to love, there is no more fear needed of judgment. Right? Because Jesus has taken the, the penalty, the wages of our sin on himself, on the cross, in his resurrection, Jesus has come to be the savior of the world and in his love for us, he actually removes your need for fear. Right? Your punishment, your death, your sin, your shame has actually all of it been swallowed up in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because of this profound truth, you do not need to fear. You know, there's this, the, the, the most um, written command in all of scripture is do not fear. Why? Because God is with you. Christian, do not fear because Jesus has taken the penalty of death, the penalty of sin on himself, full, stop, complete. You don't need to fear judgment anymore. Because you are his children, because you are made righteous in Christ, because Jesus has come, because love has come and birthed you again in Jesus, you need not fear. This changes everything about you. Even your fears even your, your deep, dark fears that you wrestle with that keep you up at night, even those fears are transformed, are dealt with by the Spirit as he births you in his love, as he perfects his love in you. You know, as the great John Stott writes about the church and how they're reborn in love, he says the church's great characteristic is to be love, not fear. We're not to be a people driven by fear. We're meant to be a people driven by love no matter the cost. Just like Jesus was driven by love no matter the cost for himself. We ought to be a people driven by love no matter the cost for ourselves. We're supposed to be fearless. But is this the mark of your life? Is this the mark of the, the church at large right now? I mean, fear is such a gripping thing, isn't it? I think so much of our church, maybe so much of your life is just marked by fear. Fear of our, our world and what might happen to us. 
Fear for our lives, fear for provision, fear for our children, fear down the line, you name it, we're afraid. Fear is crippling. It can rule us. And when it, fear drives us, what it leads us to is just rotten fruit. It's this endemic fear that causes you to hide and run from God, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, to run and hide from the world around us instead of being a witness in this world, to being a witness of love. You know, and here John is reminding you, he's reminding me, he's reminding all of us, he's reminding his church, the true power of God's love. That the love of God is more powerful than your fears. His love that causes you to run to the Father, to trust his love for you is secure, to trust his love is stronger than your fear. And God loves us and has demonstrated this most clearly in his son. And the truth is that the more that the gospel grips your heart, the more the reality that you are a son and daughter of the living God grips your heart, the more that fear will be driven out and you will bear fruit in the world. This is the final thing that we see here is that, is that God's love bears fruit in the world. God's love bears fruit in the world. And I, I think there's, there's three fruits here that, that, I, that I see that I want to bring our, our attention to in the, the fruits of witness, obedience, and, and victory. And the first is, is witness. You know, in um, one commentary by Peter Lighthart, I was reading about this, and he randomly, in the middle of it, starts talking about uh, atheism. I'm like, what are you talking about, Peter? So I just kind of start flipping, skip that part, and move on. And then, uh, and then I, f I figured out what he was actually talking about in a roundabout way. He was talking about uh, verse 12. Let me read verse 12 for us again. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And uh, what, what he's getting at is this, that uh, before the 1500s, um, there was basically zero atheism. In fact, Christians were actually accused of being atheists uh, at the early church days because, because Christians didn't have statues that they bowed down and worshiped, and so the Romans thought that was weird, and so they thought they were atheists. But other than that, you didn't really find atheism uh, until around the, the, the 1500s. Before that, it was unthinkable, but all of a sudden, atheism was on the rise. The question is why? What happened in the 1500s that made this, this come to the rise? And while there's always more than one answer to these kind of cultural questions. Lightheart points out that if, if we, the church, are supposed to be the visibility of God in this world, that people are supposed to see the church and see God, and if, if God's believability depends on us, then is it any wonder that atheism arose in an age when Christians began killing each other? Right? How is anyone gonna know God when Christians hate each other? When they bear more resemblance to Cain than to Christ? You know, God has made us new so that we could be his witness in the world. And the truth is, we can't invent some sort of instrument to make people see Jesus. Right? He's, he's left, he's, he's ascended into heaven. First John tells us that we're left with the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, because the apostles themselves are gone too. I, you know, I can't consult with John or Peter or do an interview with them up on stage. Instead, we're left with the testimony of scriptures. But more than that, what John is telling us is that we, his people, have also been made a living image of the God who is love. And God is making himself visible in the world through us, through his people. This is the, the first way God's love bears fruit in our lives is in making us a witness to the world, which is, I think, both an amazing truth and a scary truth. It's amazing because God entrusts us, his people, with so much. He entrusts his work in us by the Spirit so that so, that, so much that he says, yeah, you know, the world will, will see me in my people. He trusts his people with this work. It's wild. But it's scary because we know how far away we are from being perfected in this love. But perhaps one of the ways our love for each other and neighbor can be most seen and most powerful is actually in our repentance. In our confessing our sins to each other and forgiving each other as Christ forgave us. You know, may we become a strong witness and testimony to our God in this world. So the first fruit of, of God's love in us is, is birthing us again to be witnesses in this world. The, the second fruit that I see here is that of obedience. This is at the end, verse, picking up in verse 20, he says this, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
or everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ and has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. So this is the second fruit of love in our lives is is obedience. And that obedience is seen first and foremost in the fact that we are to love one another. So we're to serve and lay down our lives for each other. This is the fruit that comes if you're born in Christ. Now, of course, we're not a people who do this perfectly, but this ought to be a trajectory, a growth in our lives. Right? Our first instinct towards each other is not to fight or to be quarrelsome, but to serve, right? to understand, to love. Love is not just this feeling that bubbles up inside of us, but it's this action. It's this commitment. It's obedience. Obedience is love. And it takes the action Jesus took, which is to say love lays down its life for its neighbor, for its brother and sister in Christ. When you love God, when you've been born in him, obedience will follow. He says, if you you confess Jesus with your mouth, but remain unchanged, undrawn toward obedience to God's law, then there's a legitimate question of whether or not you actually believe. Now, this is where things are always challenging in Scripture because John absolutely wants to actually comfort his people. This whole section begins with him calling them without question, you are the beloved of the Lord. But there are always those in the church seeking to disrupt it, wolves in their midst. And in this context that First John is writing to, there are wolves in the midst that he is trying to root out. But not to root out just to get rid of them. He, he actually wants them to be challenged by this so that they actually turn to belief. So the question for you is, is there love for one another in your heart? The, the commandments of the Lord are, are not there. He says they're not to be burdensome. They're light. They're easy. His burden is light. His burden is easy. They're there to drive out fear that you can live freely with his, within his constraints. You know, one great example, this is what we saw this morning just in church membership, covenanting yourself to a people. It's, it's one of the most radical things you could do with your life, submitting yourself to others, seeking the good of others. This is the second fruit that we see here being born in love is in obedience and loving others, loving God, serving him. And the final fruit we see here is the fruit of victory. Look with me back at verse four. It says this, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Right, this is your final fruit, and it's, it's victory. You know, John is not talking about endurance here, about just holding on. He says, listen, you who have faith, you who have been born again, have actually overcome this world. You have victory. The final fruit of God's love in us is this victory. And apart from being born in Christ, any love and act of love that we have is, is in vain, still rooted in the fruit of the first Adam. But for those who are born in Christ, we can be sure of our victory because of our faith. Right, through our faith in Jesus, we triumph over this world. In, in, in this, he's not, he's not speaking of just general faith. Just like earlier, he's not speaking of general love for all humanity, but faith in Jesus, who is the Son of God, which is a statement about the kingly nature of Christ, the anointed king who is, who is ruling at his Father's right hand. If we believe this, then we overcome the world because the world is what's passing away. But God's kingdom, the kingdom that we're born into, The kingdom that Christ rules is forever and ever. And this is most clearly seen in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that that though he was killed, he gained victory, victory over the places of death and the powers of the enemy. And his pattern of of, of conquering this world plays out in our lives too, that the world can slaughter and kill, but eventually we will come back glorified. And even our, our deaths are seeds that go into the ground to bear the fruit of the kingdom. Right, the cross is the, the gateway to new life. This, this means that whatever may look like defeat and death in your life is actually victory in life. Because in Christ, defeats are never defeats. Not forever. Not for long. But God's love is the, the victory that gained victory over the world. This is the fruit of God's love in our lives. It makes us his people, transforms us into new people to be his witnesses, to be where people look at us, they see God on this planet. They see God at work through us. And it bears obedience to him, that we would submit our lives to him as our good king, serving and loving others as he has served and loved us. And it makes us a victorious people. The battle's already over. We are victorious right now. 
And where you struggle to be a witness, ask the God of love to help. He is your loving Father. He longs to transform you into the image of Christ, his Son. Where you struggle with obedience, ask the Father to make you humble, that you can submit to your good and gracious King. Where you struggle to have faith, look to the victory of the cross. Right, as Jesus defeated the powers of death, so you who are united to him in faith have overcome death and all the works of the enemy. May we be a people who learn to walk in these great twos. May God's love continue to perfect us. And may we be a witness to Yakima from here to the ends of the world of the victory we have in Christ until all creation is filled with his glory. Amen. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven. We give you thanks for the power, for the truth that you are love. And you've invited us, your people, into that love. May you continually perfect us in this love. That we would be a shining witness, a shining example of your glory. Do this in us by the power of your spirit, we pray, we depend, and we humbly ask. Amen.